You might know him. His name is Greg. He's a good guy and has a great family. He went to some of the finest schools. He had so much going for him. But in college, he started drinking a lot. Actually, he drank a good bit in high school, but he managed really well to to hide it. Except for that one time when he really messed up his parents' car, trying to take a turn so sharply that he ended up in the ditch. But college, college, it wasn't particularly easy for him. Oh, he managed to graduate, but afterwards he struggled to hold down a job for very long. His parents, Francis and John, they loved him, and they love him. They wanted him to succeed. They helped him make connections. They even paid his rent sometimes, and they made excuses for why he was having such a hard time making it in the world. His younger siblings were kind of glad when he was off at school because every time he came home from school breaks and he got really drunk, his behaviors affected everyone in the family. Yes, his behaviors damaged relationships and disrupted the peace. It's kind of like those baby mobiles where you have four or five items hanging down from a ring, each one balancing the other perfectly. But when you yank on one, all the others have to dance around like crazy just to keep the balance, to keep the equilibrium. Yes, Greg's drinking was affecting everyone in the family. Oh, his parents bargained and pleaded with him and with God. They even told fibs along the way to cover things up, and they tried really hard to hide Greg's addiction from the larger community. They did this for a long time, and really they tried to hide it from themselves as well. Yes, they so badly didn't want it to be true. It was exhausting. Now, Francis and John did not cause Greg's illness, and they can't cure it. But through the years, even though they didn't mean to, they have in some ways contributed to it. Greg's parents were churchgoers, believers, but they had an image to keep up. And frankly, frankly, they were pretty certain, I mean, they really thought they could do this on their own. Fortunately, or unfortunately maybe, They hadn't hit rock bottom until Greg ended up in the hospital. I think it was there in the hospital waiting room on that dark, dismal day, racked with uncertainty as to what to do next, that you could hear the words of the anguished father in the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel emerging from the mouth of Francis and hanging in the air. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe you can help me. You can help us. But, oh God, I have become so good at trying to do this all by myself. I need help. More help than I can muster on my own. I think, friends, if we stop and really think about it, I believe, like Francis, we all have something we need help with. Help 
from a higher power. This is the second week of our sermon series called Rise, Jesus, and the 12 Steps. And each week we're taking two more steps through Alcoholics Anonymous's cherished sequence, asking ourselves what wisdom might be found there for all of us. Truly everyone experiences being powerless in life. It's unavoidable. And often when we think of being powerless, we imagine those struggling with addictions like drug and alcohol, food and sex, pornography, gambling. And that makes sense. Yet the wisdom and power of the 12 steps are not just for those who are suffering with those kind of addictions, but they're for you and for me. Every one of us has, as our portico pastor Justin likes to say, everyone has past or current hurts, hang-ups, and habits, all of which create problems. Last week, Justin laid the groundwork for us, talking, taking on the enormous first step, admitting that we are powerless before addiction. And the case we're making, while it may seem obvious to some and shocking to others, but we are making the case that we are all addicts. We're all addicted to something in one way or another. Addict, Whew. addiction, those are such loaded words, aren't they? They conjure up very specific images of people that you see, people that you love, people that you hate. Addict, it is not a word that anyone cares to apply to themselves, which is why Owning the addiction is step one. It's foundational to the process. The dictionary defines the word addict surprisingly in religious terms is to devote or surrender oneself habitually or obsessively to something. While addiction can look like a devoted, dogged attention to something, Catholic priest Richard Rohr, who's written quite a lot on this topic, makes the case that it is often also a consummate form of distraction, minimizing other uncomfortable realities that we would just as soon ignore. Someone put it like this, I was using alcohol to treat my alcoholism. It was just a powerful anesthesia against other painful things that I would rather not consider. One can, of course, be addicted to lots of things, shopping and food and sex. But one thing nearly all of us are addicted to is a false understanding of ourself. Again, Richard Rohr argues that there is a very human instinct to build strategies for success that he calls happiness programs. These strategies rely upon and affirm our, our own strength. In short, we create false versions of ourselves that have everything they need to navigate the world. Francis and John did this, didn't they? I mean, they showed a false version of their family to the world. Yes, we invest an incredible amount of time and energy and money into maintaining that narrative. It can look like a lot of different things. It could look like gym membership, virtue signaling, even some plastic surgeries. It can look like those tiny little lies that move you to the center of your own story. You said that funny thing, not the guy next to you. You saw the restaurant go up in flames instead of hearing about it on the news like the rest of us. You, 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 the tiny adjustments we make to keep our fragile egos intact. 
or maybe it's just me and not you. Because I know, I mean, I admit that I like to look good on Facebook, okay? Okay, I know. I know it's me. All right, I am, after all, a storytelling preacher. And for goodness sake, I think I know a thing or two about embellishment. Seriously. Oh, and by the way, Greg and Francis and John, they are not real people. I embellish their story a bit. But they are real in the sense that their story is made up of the stories of friends and family members I have observed and walked with through the years. And here's the thing, even though it doesn't seem logical, it's often the most successful members of our culture who are the least aware of their own addictive natures, that deep investment that they have in the illusion of their ability to handle any challenge on their own. It seems that they are, maybe we are, missing much of what Jesus is trying to say to us, to teach us. We, you and I, we need to let go of the illusion that we're going to be our own Savior. Let go of the idea that you are the God of your own universe. And then maybe, maybe even more gently, Jesus is asking us to look. Look at what we're doing to ourselves in the process of maintaining that illusion. Look at what you're doing to the very people that you love so much. It's a very costly self-deception. So what might it look like to give ourselves completely over and surrender and trust in God? So step one, letting go of our pride and admitting that we are powerless before addiction. Step two, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step two, it's about hope. And it's about keeping an open mind. No matter what you believe in, this is the step in which you become open to the idea that faith in a higher power will help you obtain soundness of mind. The Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps and 12 Traditions books puts it like this. Step two is the rallying point for all of us. Whether agnostic, atheist, or former believer, we stand together on this step. Yes, step two is the hope step because it gives us hope as we realize we don't have to feel so alone or sad or in pain. We don't have to keep playing that exhausting game of pretend. And so step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. It is a step of faith. The first two steps are kind of reflective, but step three is the first one that requires action on our part. It is an act of faith. Step one, I can't. Step two, God can. Step three, I think I'll let him. For you, as a follower of Jesus, this should sound very familiar, for indeed, it is our story. This week, I was talking with a friend who spent a lot of time with the Al-Anon community over the years, and she said, I've always thought of it as a waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three. I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. 
it can be and needs to be repeated over and over. One, two, three, one, two, three. As I've thought about this this week, I've realized so much more clearly how these steps would be, they can be, incredibly helpful in so many situations. For example, our Caregiver Sanctuary Group, which is a support group for persons caring for loved ones with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Well, the members of this group are taking this 12-step journey together using a resource called 12 Steps for Caregivers, recognizing that they didn't cause the disease, they can't cure the disease, but they can manage their expectations and get help in the midst of it. One of their leaders said, it's really all about surrender. Surrender. I can't do it on my own. God can. I think I'll let God help me. One, two, three. One, two, three. So what about you, friends? Are you ready to turn it over to God? Ready to ask for and receive help from a higher power? If so, would you please pray this prayer with me? God, I can't fix my life and everything that's wrong. I need you. I give all of myself to you. Save me from me so I can love you and others more fully. Remove those things that block me so that the world can see your power, your love, and your way of life. May it be so. Amen.